So one of my favorite TV shows growing up is one of the worst TV shows of all time. It's called Lost. Uh, and the reason why it's so terrible, unfortunately, you don't know it's terrible until the series finale, but uh, every episode leaves you with this baffled what in the world is going on. And there's season after season of every episode. You've got nine new questions. There's like a smoke monster that shows up and kills a couple people, but then goes away for some random reason. They never tell you why, but it happens. And you're like, I guess I'll keep watching this show. Surely at some point, the writers have a a conclusion and an explanation that they're heading towards. And luckily, when you got to the series finale, I think six, seven, 19 seasons in, they uh, explained nothing. And the show ended and they said, joke's on you. What a great social experiment. You should have been watching 24, right? Uh, and so I say that because we, we've, we've been seeing, if you've been paying attention, we've, we've seen all throughout chapter 12, this continual battle that Jesus has with the Pharisees. As we've been walking through Matthew, Jesus is ministering, preaching the kingdom, and the Pharisees show up every now and then. They don't like it. But all throughout this chapter, we've seen story after story after story that is the Pharisees coming at Jesus. And if you've been looking at the Pharisees in particular, one of the things that you should be noticing is they are acting insane. Every story, they just kind of get crazier and crazier. First, they just call uh, Jesus a sinner. Then they call him a blasphemer. They, They ratchet it up a little bit. Last week we saw they said he does all these good things by the power of Satan. And then ultimately they just decide, let's just kill this guy. They're acting more and more insane as, notice this, something so obviously good is happening in front of them. The suffering are finding healing. The rejected are finding acceptance. God is so clearly at work and they just keep getting crazier and crazier. And if you've been paying attention, you should have the question of why? What is wrong with them? What's going on there? What is happening that's causing them to continue to double down and triple down, even when it's so obviously foolish? And today, because Jesus is kinder to us than the writers of Lost, we're going to actually see why. Why are they behaving in the insane way they seem to continue behaving? And Jesus is going to say it's because of what's inside of them. It's because of what's on the throne of their hearts. Their hearts are driving all of this foolish action. And Jesus is going to expose it. And as he exposes them, as we've so often seen, everyone in this room who shares a heart that's prone to sin like the Pharisees, we have a lot of lessons to learn from our Savior today. So we'll see three things in particular in just these short verses. We'll see the tree and its fruits, or sorry, rather the the fruit of the tree, the treasure of the heart, and the judgment of words. The fruit of the tree, the treasure of the heart, and the judgment of words. Let's dive into that first section, the fruit of the tree. Look at verse 33. This is Jesus speaking. This is a continuation of the story we just saw last week with Tim, as they call Jesus, doing these healing miracles by the power of Satan. Jesus says this, either Make a tree good and its fruit good, or make a tree bad and its fruit bad. For a tree is known by its fruits. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are 
evil. So Jesus is going to use a lot of imagery in this story. And here's an imagery that we've kind of already seen before. It's a pretty common one. Just the reality that Jesus is saying there's two types of trees, only two. There's good ones and there's bad ones. How do you know the difference? Do you cut it down and count the rings? This one has over 18. It must be a good tree. Or do you taste the sap? How do you know? that the tree is good or the tree is bad. And Jesus says, very obviously, you look at the fruit. If you pick a fruit and take a bite and it's rotten and all the other fruit around hanging on the branches are rotten, it must be a rotten tree. And if you take a bite of the fruit and it is good, the tree must be good. Essentially, he's getting at this idea. You can see someone's nature. You can see what's inside someone by how they behave, by how they live, by how they speak. Look at the outward actions, and that is flowing out of and therefore shows you what's in the heart. I mentioned a few weeks ago, I've been reading through a book on Charles Spurgeon, the very famous preacher, but it's a book on his efforts as a pastor. And when they would admit someone into their church, when they would take in a new member, they had a very extensive process where they'd meet with them and hear if they understand the gospel and ask them questions and things like that. But before they let someone in to make sure they were a believer, they had been truly changed and followed Jesus, they would have a member meeting and they would assign what they called a visitor. And what the visitor would do is they would go and interview that person's coworkers and that person's neighbors and that person's family uh, and see what is the fruit of their life. Not what they would say, what, what would other people say is the fruit of their life? They would just recognize, I can't see the heart like God can, but I can see the fruit. And so they would ask coworkers, have you seen a kind of supernatural change in this person. They would ask their neighbors, is this person patient? Is this person kind? Does this person seem to love others? Is this person self-controlled? Do you see that they envy a lot or are they incredibly generous? They would go interview, right, to see this idea. Is the fruit of their life point to the reality that they've trusted in God? And that the spirit of the living God is dwelling in them and therefore they are bearing the fruit of the spirit. Now, we're not going to start that practice at Parkway. A lot of you are like, okay, I need to get to know my neighbors and be nice. right, we're not going to start that. But just imagine, what if we did? What would our visitors find? Would your neighbors and your coworkers and your family say, yeah, you're not perfect, but yes, They seem to just have a sort of supernatural peace. When I see something on the news and I freak out and I go talk to them, they just have this, you know, if the person's not a Christian, they just seem to have this understanding that everything's going to work out. And though everybody on the news is saying the world is burning down, they seem to have this confidence that all things are going to be made new, right? Would they find that? That's what Jesus is getting at here. The fruit of your life, the way you act, the way you speak, what you see on the outside, your behavior is evidence of what's on the inside. Are you a good tree or are you a bad tree? So take the context of this story. What's been happening with the Pharisees? Why is Jesus saying this with the Pharisees? Jesus has been going around healing and doing the work of the kingdom. Good fruit, obviously good fruit. And the Pharisees say, he's a bad tree, right? He has a demon. The Pharisees, on the other hand, they're saying of themselves, we're teachers of the law of God We're the leaders of the people of God. We're the best tree. And what's the fruit that they're bearing? They are actively, systematically trying to kill God. 
and turn other people's eyes away from God. They are claiming to be the best tree. They are bearing the most rotten fruit possible. And Jesus is saying it does not work like that. Pick one. Be a good tree and bear good fruit. Or be a bad tree and admit that you are bearing very wicked fruit. And then Jesus, in case we had any questions about the Pharisees, makes it incredibly clear for us in verse 34. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good? How can you bear good fruit when you are evil? How can you bear ripe fruit when you are a rotten tree. When Jesus calls them, by the way, this brood of vipers, if you've been with us in theological equipping class, uh, you know this isn't just a random insult. Jesus is connecting them to someone. He's tying them to a very, 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 very key verse in your Bible, Genesis 3.15. We see in the beginning of Genesis, God creates all things. He creates Adam and he creates Eve in the, par- in the garden of paradise. And then in Genesis 3, a serpent, a viper, The devil slithers in, and what does he do? He goes to Eve, and he says, turn your eyes away from God and follow me. And then we see this in Genesis 3.15. As Eve listens to him and takes a bite of the fruit, and Adam follows her lead, and there's a curse all over all creation. The fall happens. Sin wrecks God's perfect world. We see the curses are being pronounced. Eve gets difficulty in childbearing. Adam gets difficulty in cultivating the earth. Thorns and thistles will come from your work, but there is a promise from God. Genesis 3.15. This is one of the most important verses in your Bible if you want to understand what's happening. Genesis 3.15. This is God speaking to the serpent. I will put enmity, I'll put hostility between you, serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So two things happening here. One, for the rest of the Bible after this verse, you're going to see a battle between those who are the offspring of the serpent and those who are the offspring of the woman, the people of God. When you see David and Goliath, and Samuel's taking time to describe Goliath's armor as scaly, he's not just fun facts, you know, throwing fun facts in there. He's identifying Goliath with a serpent. And when David marches out and bruises his head, he's identifying him with the offspring of the woman. And here we see the offspring of the woman, the savior that is promised that will eventually crush the head of the serpent and lead us back to the garden and the supposed leaders of Israel. And Jesus says, I know whose sons you are. You, like the serpent in the garden, are going to the people of God and saying, turn your eyes away from God and follow me. You brood of vipers. Stop turning people's eyes away from Jesus, the Redeemer. Stop following your father, the devil, and saying, surely God's not that good. Surely he's got other ulterior motives and really has a bad intention for you. Come, turn your eyes away from him. Follow me. That's what the Pharisees are doing. They're behaving like their father, the serpent, the devil. That's a very strong way of saying you're a bad tree. You're, a worse, you're the worst tree. Your fruit is the most rotten fruit possible. That's what Jesus is doing with this 
insult. How can you who are evil speak good? Now, notice what's happening. Very, very, very important for you to see if you want to walk with the Lord. Jesus is not saying the way you become a good tree is by behavior modification. The way you become a good tree is through good hard work, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. Be against the right things and before the right things. Keep your nose clean, right? Do what is right. Then you'll be a good tree. And if you fail and you don't perform enough, then obviously you are a bad tree. That is not what Jesus is saying. Look how wonderfully simple it is. What's the difference between a bad tree and a good tree? Look how simple it is. It's their heart towards Jesus. The difference between a bad tree and a good tree is how they relate to Jesus, their heart towards Jesus. Do you say to him, I'm basically good. I'm not like those other people who are really, really bad, right? I go to church every Sunday. I live in the South. We're all good people live. I even fled another state to get here because I'm that committed to being awesome and joining other awesome people, right? I, I, I'm, my performance is pretty good. Sure, not perfect. Nobody's perfect, but... 80%, right? And Jesus is just kind of in the way or submitting to him or calling him Lord to be in the way. Or is he kind of in the divine butler category? Sure, if you want to come benefit me, go ahead. But I'm not doing any of this like life surrender stuff with you, Jesus. I'm good. You can gladly take away my problems, right? I'll call you if I need you. But if not, you know, please go back to your quarters. I've got, I've got it. Most of the way. Is that your attitude towards Jesus? Is that the rotten fruit that someone would see by how you live? Not what you would say. Nobody would say that. No one would say, yeah, I think Jesus is a divine butler. What does the fruit of your life say? If I were to just watch you creepily in the corner, live for several weeks, would I walk away convinced they are desperate, daily desperate, for God's intervention. They know they need him for every hour of every day. I can tell by how they live. Or would I say, I don't, I genuinely don't know. They pray, they do like the spiritual stuff, but all the other stuff looks like they've got it. What would the fruit of your life say? It all comes down to your heart towards Jesus. Do you look at him and say, Here's the only one who's ever actually been a good tree and the one I desperately need. Here's the one I must have. Here's the one I have no life without. That's the position of someone who is a good tree, how you relate to Jesus. The Pharisees, on the other hand, have no need for him. In fact, they want to eliminate him. They want him out of the way so they can keep on being awesome and letting other people know with their loud prayers in the streets how awesome they are. That's their attitude towards Jesus. And ironically, that's what reveals they are a rotten tree. But Jesus is going to drill down a little bit deeper for us. So that's the first thing we see. You know what kind of tree you are by the fruit of your life. We see that in the Pharisees. That's true of all of us. Jesus is going to drill down a little bit deeper. That first image of the tree and its fruit is kind of looking from the outside in. Look at the fruit on the outside. That gives you a little peek on what's happening Inside, in this next uh, image, he's going to flip that and say, 
what happens on the outside, the fruit you bear on the outside is an overflow from what you treasure on the inside. How you live on the outside is an overflow of what you treasure on the inside. So the first look is outside in. This next one is inside out. Look at verse 34. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. And an evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. So we just saw, you see the nature of someone by the quality of the fruit. Now Jesus is saying, the quality of the fruit, whether it's ripe or rotten, grows out of the treasure of your heart. So, what are the Pharisees treasuring? What have we seen all throughout Matthew? What does Jesus very clearly show us in Matthew 6 when he says, don't be like the Pharisees. They're treasuring self-exaltation, being right in their own eyes, other people thinking they're right in their own eyes, self-justification. Why do they keep entering into all these battles with Jesus publicly when they keep getting dominated? Because they want others to see this guy's a fraud, we're the real thing. Self-exaltation, self-justification. Don't listen to his insults of us. This guy's the homeless rabbi who's walking around. We're the ones who are God's people. Right? That's the treasure of their heart. And what does it produce? What's the fruit that it's produced? They remove anybody that gets in their way. Sinners come near to them. Ugh, get away. You might mess up my holiness. Go to the outskirts of the streets and scream unclean a little bit longer. I'm too holy to deal with you. I don't want you messing this up. And even God in their midst, bringing the actual kingdom of God, get out of the way. You're taking too much of our fame. We don't like the size of the crowds following you. We need to eliminate you. That's what's driving them, and the fruit it's producing is getting anybody out of their way that might threaten that treasure of their heart. And that is what is true of each and every one of us. We have something, something treasured in our heart. We have something on the throne of our heart that is, whether you realize it or not, driving everything you do. The busyness of your calendars is an overflow of what you treasure. You might just think, I've got a busy life. All these things keep happening. You've chosen all those things. The things that frustrate you are an overflow of something that you're treasuring. The things you long for are an overflow of what you are treasuring. How you speak, which is actually exactly what Jesus is addressing, is an overflow of what you're treasuring. Or to say it another way, you are driven by what you delight in. You're driven by what you delight in. And if that's true, the most important question for us to ask ourselves is, what is that that we're treasuring? What is it that we're treasuring? Or perhaps a better way to ask it, what is the fruit of our life say we're treasuring? Everybody in this room, if you're a Christian, would say, Jesus, right? What is the fruit of your life say that you are treasuring? Is it success at work? Is it social acceptance? What are the things that if it were taken away from you, your life would actually crumble? I can't lose this. I can lose these things. Okay, we can, we can trim the fat here, but these are the things that if they were taken away from me, I think everything would crumble. I would spiral into depression. I wouldn't know where to go. 
Is it a person? Is it a certain identity? Is it being well thought of? And this is the most terrifying thing. It can be a good thing. The great pastor who once said a good thing that's made an ultimate thing instantly becomes an idol. The good things in your life, if they sit on that throne, if they become an ultimate thing, they instantly become an idol. And notice what Jesus is saying here. He's equipping you to find those and uproot them. The way you find the idols of your heart is by following the fruit. When something infuriates you, when you lose sleep at night, or when you snap, don't just snap and then move on and say, sorry, I'll try better next time. Follow that down. There's a treasure that was just touched that made you behave in that way, that made you lose sleep at night. Follow that down. Ask the why question. If you're petrified by social situations and you've been trained to say, I'm just an introvert, that's just what we do. One, stop thinking that way. Two, why? Why is it so scary? Well, what if I, you know, I, I'm not quick on my feet. Okay, that's fine. A lot of people are not quick on their feet, but why? Why is that so terrifying? Well, if I say the wrong thing, you know, someone might think bad of me. Okay, we're closer. Why is that so bad? Say the wrong thing. People misspeak all the time. I misspeak in front of 300 people every week, right? Why is that so bad? Well, maybe they won't accept me. Maybe they'll reject me. Okay, there it is. That's a good thing. Being accepted, that's not a bad thing, but when it becomes an ultimate thing, when you must be loved, then it becomes an idol. All of a sudden, you'll never be able to fail for the rest of your life. You will always be presenting the, the Instagram version of yourself, cleaned up, no faults, and you'll never be able to be actually known because what if they know you? What if they see one of those cracks and what if they reject you? That can't be lost. That can't happen. And look at me, that is going to crush you. It probably already is. It's going to crush you and it's going to crush those around you. You'll never be actual, actually able to relate to people. People will just be used to either like you. And if they like you, you've got to keep performing so that they keep liking you, which is crushing you and crushing them. Or they don't like you, well, they need to be rejected. You'll never be able to be rebuked because you've got an image to obtain. And if there's sin in you that someone's rebuking and you might need to kind of own up to it, you'll never be able to see those things rightly. So you have to say, no, you're wrong about me. You just, you don't understand me. You haven't taken the time, right? To actually, you know, you're just, you're off, right? You've got the plank in your eye, right? Read Matthew 6, right? You'll never be able to say, I am a sinner. I, let, me, let me search my heart. Why? All because you must be loved. It's a good thing. But when it becomes an ultimate thing, when it's seated on the throne, it will crush you. It will crush those around you. There's only one thing, you probably know where this is going, there's only one thing you were actually designed and created to treasure. Or rather, only one person that you were designed and created to treasure. There's only one person that was ever meant to sit on that throne of your heart. Only one treasure you can possibly have that will actually bring forth good. And it's the person who's giving us this lesson. When Jesus Christ becomes your treasure. Notice Matthew, by the way, isn't just saying, receive him as Savior or submit to him as Lord. He does say both of those things. Notice Matthew, what Matthew wants you to do. Treasure him with all your might. 
Love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And when you do, you will actually be able to care for others. You'll be what Tim Keller calls self-forgetful. Actually, C.S. Lewis through Tim Keller calls self-forgetful. You'll just be able to love others and you, won't, you genuinely won't be thinking of yourself. You won't be paralyzed by that. Did I say that the right way? What are they thinking about me? Did I make enough funny jokes? And maybe if I did, okay, they like me. I can't lose that. Next time I'll do that same. You won't do that game in your own head. You'll just be able to love people and not care why because you know you have been infinitely accepted by the Father. You know that the same Father that peels back the heavens and says, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased at Jesus' baptism, says that to you. Your acceptance bucket is infinitely full in Jesus Christ, and therefore I don't need, like a vampire, to draw acceptance from you. I can just love you. Because I've got someone on the throne of my heart that is more than enough acceptance. You see that? You'll actually be able to care for others. You'll actually be able to grow as a sinner because you'll acknowledge you're a sinner who's desperate for a gracious Savior to constantly intervene. That is the only treasure that isn't an idol. It's the treasure that you were actually made for. So again, the question, this is, look how wonderfully simple it is. Just like the tree and its fruit, bringing forth good treasure and bringing forth bad treasure is all a question of how does your heart relate to Jesus? Is he your treasure or is something else even a good thing? Has a good thing become an ultimate thing? It's summertime. Let me just give you a real practical thing. It's summertime, and which means everyone in this room is like, I got to get in shape because it's pool time. It's going to be 1,000 degrees outside. Therefore, we need water to cool us off because this is Texas. And you California people were like, this is the only time I consider going back, right? Whenever it's 1,000 degrees. Uh, so we, we, we need to get in shape, and that's, that's just what we do, right? But there's a thousand things to do to get in shape. You got to work out, and you got to eat right, and you got to not eat wrong, and you got to sleep enough, and all these things. You're just like, okay. And it's, you know, knowing this, there's always an infomercial that shows up, and it's like, we've figured it out. We've, we've designed a pill that you can take while you're going to sleep, and it's just going to do it all for you. You're going to wake up with an eight pack, you're going to be running to 4 4. It's great. Look, we tested it on these athletes. And the retired athletes are like, it works, right? Um, and so there's something like that that always pops up. And you're like, I know this is crazy. But, I mean, it's only like 20 bucks. You know, let's just let's give it a shot, shot, right? One pill that will fix everything. And, of course, it always doesn't work. It's like made out of rat food or something like that. Um, here is a pill. I'm going to give you a pill that's, that's not fake. It's not a farce. It's actually the real thing. And if you take this pill, it will actually fix everything in your life. And here it is. Treasure Jesus. Treasure Jesus with all your might. And you may be thinking, thanks a lot, Jared. I knew this was going to turn into something squishy. Love God. Glad I came to church. How's that going to help my financial problem? That's going to do nothing for my empty bank account. And look at me. It is actually going to solve your financial problem. And I don't mean the ridiculous prosperity gospel. When you actually begin to treasure Jesus and you actually begin to grasp, not just, you know, in an abstract intellectual way, but you actually begin to grasp with the core of your being that the God of the universe is in charge of every second you have left in this world. 
He's in charge of the next breath you're about to take. It might be the last breath if he deems it so. And he's in charge of every penny in your bank account and Elon's bank account. And he's your good father. And he's the good shepherd. You know what will actually happen? Your bank account will stay the exact same. But all that stress and anxiety that the empty bank account causes in your heart that's making you miserable, you might loosen your grip a little bit. You might actually see that the Bible is constantly screaming at you. The God of the universe knows the numbers of hairs on your head. And he's never taken his eyes off you for one second. You might be poor your entire life. But worst case scenario for you is infinite riches and glory with him. That won't fill up your bank account. That will solve your ultimate financial problem, which is a faith problem. So look at me. Take that pill. That will solve your financial problem. What is miserable about the empty bank account will be solved. The stress, the anxiety. You have a a bad marriage? Read good marriage books. Get good practical tips. Those things are great. Here's the pill for that. What's ultimately going to solve you, serving your spouse, is seeing that the king of the universe came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life for you. And when that's just not a, you know, a verse painted on your wall, but that's something treasured in your heart, all the things you're trying to get from your spouse, all the things that if they would just do this, we'd have a good marriage, if they would just wake up, all that stuff will just fade away again because you'll see you have everything in Jesus. And you might actually begin to love without looking for anything in return. You won't play that game of I'll lead when she submits or I'll submit when he loves me like Christ loves the church. You won't do that because you'll see that Christ has actually fulfilled all those things and you have all that you're looking for in him and you can actually do what he did, which is just serve, knowing you might get nothing but hate in return. There's the pill for that. It's gonna solve the ultimate problem. What you treasure, or rather when he is your treasure, you won't just bear good fruit, you'll bear his fruit. And it will genuinely infuse everything that you do. You will be able to love others as he has loved you. We love, why? Because he first loved us. When you see the foolish world, when you see that news story that makes your chest tighten a little bit in frustration, you'll be moved to pray rather than to scoff. Why? Because you'll know, not just intellectually, but in the core of your heart, when you were foolish, The perfect God of the universe stepped off his throne and became a servant and died a slave's death also that he can open your blind eyes. And so you'll just naturally be humble. His humility, his Philippians 2 humility will be so dear to you that it will just pour out of you. You'll actually begin to evangelize. You won't be petrified about telling other people about Jesus because he's too wonderful to be kept quiet about. What you're full of will naturally pour out of you. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth will speak. And even sin. The best way for you to defeat sin isn't to take the sin and then read a book on that specific sin. Again, all those things are fine. The best way for you to actually stop sinning is begin to taste and see the goodness of Jesus Christ and your taste buds will be rewired and you will begin to be disgusted by the bitter poison of sin. Thomas Chalmers, a great Scottish theologian a couple hundred years ago, 
had a sermon that he titled The Expulsive Power of New Affections, which we've gotten better at titles since then. That's why this one's titled Matthew 13, right? Uh, but his whole point was you don't, uh, if you pull out a sin, uh, your, your heart hates a vacuum. So if you pull out a sin, more sin's just gonna fill in there. You can't just pull out sins on their own. You have to replace them. You have to replace them with something that your affections are now set on. You used to love lust, like Augustine in the Confessions, you used to love lust and it drove everything you do. Then all of a sudden you gained the strength through Jesus Christ to enjoy a God who makes lust look like a powerless, mockable thrill. When you begin to treasure Jesus Christ, you'll just hate sin more. You'll grow in your hatred for, for sin. And the more you see of him and his wonderful face, the more you'll hate the whispers of the serpent that used to be so enticing. Now they'll be quickly identified with the wicked poison that they are. You will change, not by behavior modification. That's what we always run to. I'm bad at this, let me focus on this. The ultimate way you change is through your loves being reordered and your affections being rewired. A story that I've, I've told before that I'm, I'm careful telling unless you think bad things about my wife, uh, but when I first met Claudia Menescalco, who is now Claudia Lawson and my wife, uh, the first, this is true, the first three words I heard out of her mouth uh, where I hate kids. <laughs> now, to be fair, two seconds before that, uh, her friend was babysitting uh, this sweet little boy who destroyed her whole room and started jumping on her laptop, right? And so she came and came into the room that I was in. I'm sprightly in this new Bible school, and this beautiful woman says, I hate kids. I'm like, okay, I think I'm going to marry her, um, right? So a couple years go by, uh, and, and uh, I'll tell you one of the most just precious moments of, of my life. Um, three years ago, uh, we had our, our first little boy and it was a tough uh, delivery. And, um, a couple days after, uh, I woke up in the middle of the night and Claudia was crying and Claudia doesn't cry. I know you're like, okay. Uh, you know, I, every hundred times I cry, she cries zero. Um, so never happens. When it happens, I'm, I'm, I'm always, you know, alarms are going off. Something, something huge is happening. Um, and so I thought it was because of exhaustion or pain or something like that. And she didn't know I was awake. And I just hear her whisper, uh, I love you so much. And I sat up and she had gotten Harvey and she was holding him. And so I, I thought in that moment, the first words out of her mouth. And then this scene that I'm, I'm looking at, what has happened here? What has caused such a, a change? And it's her loves had been reordered. There was a new treasure in her life named Harvey Lawson. And all of a sudden, she's like, when can we have the next one? So we like instantly had Joe, right? And so uh, we, we got pregnant and we want to adopt, right? Her loves have been totally reordered where uh, she loves kids. And it's not because she was just like, I think this is a bad thing. People think bad of me if this is said in a sermon illustration one day. I need to start liking kids. No, her affections had changed. And look at me. That is how you change. You don't have a porn problem. You have a treasure problem. When he takes his rightful seat on the throne, when he is treasured, when he is so precious to you, 
when he's not just an abstract idea of a God who said some truths that you need to believe, but he's someone who knows your name and he's a friend and he's someone that you long to meet with and he's someone that you sprint to when you sin and when you need comfort and when you rest in him and you know in the core of your being how wonderful he is. That's the pill. All the duty of the Christian life will all of a sudden become delight. If you want to change, take that pill. Treasure him. Everything else besides him is a false treasure. Even good things, when they become ultimate things, are idols that will leave you more hungry and that will leave you more thirsty. Only the bread of life, only the living water can actually quench your thirst eternally. Only in treasuring him can you cry out like the psalmist of Psalm 73, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace and the 18th century pastor, says this. To, he was writing a letter to one of his members of his church, said this. Jesus has unsearchable, inexhaustible riches of grace to bestow the innumerable assembly before the throne of God have been all supplied from his fullness, and yet there is enough and to spare for us also and for all that shall come after us. May he give us an eager appetite, a hunger and a thirst that will not be put off with anything short of the bread of life. And then, we may be confident, we can confidently open our mouths wide, for he has promised to fill them. Do not be like the blind Pharisees who are so satisfied with lesser things and speak careless words and miss the God that is standing right in front of them as they bear their rotten fruit. Be like the leper. Be like the tax collector who finds infinite riches in him. That's the second point. Third thing. Jesus is saying to the Pharisees as they spew their ridiculous speech about him, as they're getting a bit more crazy as every verse goes on, your fruit is rotten. Because the treasure in your heart is rotten. It's making you spew all these ridiculous words. And there's coming a day when all those words won't just float off into the air for people to forget. There's coming a day where you will stand before the living God and you will give an account for everyone that you spoke. So here's our last section. The words and their judgments. Verse 36, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people, not just the Pharisees, everybody in this room, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every 
careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. So what's happening here in this story is the Pharisees just think they can say whatever they want. This guy's a homeless carpenter turned rabbi, right? Who cares if we insult him? And so they're just spewing all this rotten fruit. They're speaking however they want. And Jesus is saying, there's a day coming where all the bad trees will be exposed as bad, all the rotten fruit will be exposed, and every word that has come out of their mouth, God will hold up and they will have to answer for them. There's a 20th century Swiss theologian and pastor named Francis Schaeffer. Maybe of you have read his works, I'm sure, but he gave an analogy of every baby, when they're born, they're fitted with an invisible tape recorder around their neck. And he would say, imagine you've your whole life had this invisible tape recorder that never goes off. And at any point I can take it off and I can press play and play before everyone who's around an hour of your life. What would you do? Would you instantly think, oh, I hope they don't catch last night uh, when I was talking about that person who's standing right over there. Hopefully it's, you know, the quiet time hour, all my prayers, right? Would you, I mean, think about that for you. Would you immediately be mortified? I hope they don't catch this. I hope it doesn't play a couple months ago when I was really having a bad day and I said all that stuff. And Jesus is saying here, there is an invisible tape recorder hanging around your neck. And one day, God will press play and every word that has ever exited your lips will hit his ears and you will give an account for those words. And your eternal judgment will be a result of those words. Now, I think this is the most ter- one of the most terrifying verses in all of the Bible. I can't read it even now as I preach it without, without feeling a bit of uh, trembling in my own heart. And one of the things that just baffles me is how terrifying this verse is and how casual we are with our speech. How unbelievably casual we are with our speech. We either boil this down, we either boil down to righteous speech to just don't cuss anymore. We'll just eliminate the cuss words, and that's what God means right? by let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. Eliminate the cuss words, and you're good. Or, more terrifying, we have these weird, ridiculous justifications for how we talk. So let me give you three that are super common. We'll, we'll just kind of spew gossip or slander. We'll talk bad about other people, and then we'll just say, sorry, I'm just venting. Oh, okay, sorry. I didn't know you were venting. In that case, ignore everything the Bible ever says about your speech. You were just venting. Sorry. You're good. Keep going. Just venting, right? I've just got all this wickedness that the Bible tells me put to death, but let's just let it come out because. That's one. Here's another one. Uh, I just want want to be real. I just want to be authentic, so I'm just going to say it. I'm going to say it like I feel it, right? Which is the way that postmodernism has almost certainly crept into our speech, right? If you, if you think it, say it. If you feel it, do it. You don't want to be unauthentic, right? So just say it. Never mind the fact that scriptures say, take every thought captive and make it obey Jesus or crucify the flesh or let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, only what is good for the building up. Forget all that stuff. You're being real, right? You're being authentic. You wouldn't be fake. 
Right? We're real people here. Right? That's another one. Or perhaps the most common is, hey, I'm just a truth guy. You know, I just tell it like it is. It's not my fault I'm surrounded by snowflakes. Okay? I'm not going to let their little fluffiness get in the way of my truth. Right? Never mind the fact that the Bible says speak the truth in love or correct one another with gentleness. I'm the truth guy. Right? We have all these ridiculous justifications that say everything the Bible spends a lot of time warning us about, giving us terrifying warnings like your eternity hangs on the words that exit your mouth. You're a truth guy. Go for it. Never mind all this stuff. We are terrible at this. And Jesus says, this is no small thing. The tape recorder will press play and I'm just venting is not going to cut it. I'm just being real is not going to cut it. I'm just a truth guy. Sorry, I'm surrounded by all these little fluffy people is not going to cut it. And your eternity hangs in the balance. There's two possible judgments. Play, justified or condemned. And so the good news is for you, if you've had perfect speech, you will hear that sweet justified word. The terrifying news for you, if you've uttered careless words, you will not hear that word. And if you're with me, you're thinking right now, often uh, what Peter would utter, that how can anybody be saved? If that's the standard, perfection, never having a bad day, Never letting a careless word slip, even a careless cuss word, right? Double trouble, right? How can anyone be saved? And that is exactly what Jesus is trying to evoke. Because, as Jesus would say, with man it is impossible. The terrifying reality for you and for me is that every one of us, even if we're not as bad as the Pharisees, is a tree that bears nothing but rotten fruit. All of our good fruit, all of our good works are filthy rags. There is no one who does good. No, not one. Every single one of us has exchanged the glory of the eternal living God for a dumb idol. And we did it joyfully. And every single one of us, probably several times today, have uttered all sorts of careless speech. And so we are left with this impossible standard. With man, it is impossible. What are we to do? The tape recorder will press play. And there's only one option. Unless your God is rich in mercy and he sends his son because of the great love with which he loved us. And the actual good news is for you your God is very rich in mercy. And he did send his son. And the very one who's speaking these terrifying words to us is going to keep battling with the Pharisees and eventually go to the cross. And he is going to be condemned by every one of our careless words so that we can be justified by his perfect speech. He is going to take the wrath for all of our idolatry, all so that we can have the ultimate treasure, him. He is going to go to not just a bad tree, he's going to go to the tree of death. Also that you and I can for all of eternity eat from the tree of life. So what you need to know is all of your rotten fruit, 
all of your idolatry, all of your careless speech will be called to account and will be paid for either in hell eternally or on the cross. The tape recorder will press play and will either hear all your careless words and will hear the terrifying word condemned or it will press play and we will hear from your lips, for my pardon, this I see, nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my cleansing, this I plea, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing can for sin atone, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Not of good that I've done, nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my hope and peace, nothing but the blood of Jesus. And this is all my righteousness, nothing but the blood of Jesus. It all comes down to your heart towards him. When it presses play, will you claim, I've done good? Or will you say, I have no righteousness on my own. I can only claim the blood of my sweet treasure, Jesus Christ. Take that pill. Let's pray. Father, these are not easy things to do. Even if we have the desire to uh, put idols to death, it's a work you have to do. That's why we beg you to do it. I pray that we would be a people who don't have sanctified speech because it's a cultural value or don't clean up our words because we want to put on a certain front as someone who is righteous, but rather we have a treasure in our hearts that just overflows speech that builds up because all we care about is building up his glorious name. All we care about is your exaltation. And Father, I pray that if we're feeling the, the conviction of the Spirit right now, that we would see how sweet that is. That you are not a God who shames to keep people in shame. You are a God who convicts so that we might be brought to life. If we're feeling the, the disgusting taste of sin in our mouth, I pray that we would see it's because a merciful God is showing us that we're sprinting towards a cliff. And we need to turn around to your son. And I pray that when we turn around, we wouldn't just say, oh, salvation. That'll ha that's how I'll avoid this sentence of condemnation. I pray that we would see the sweetness and the glory of your son because you didn't just save us so that we wouldn't be condemned. You saved us so that we would glorify you and enjoy you forever. Let us see and taste the wonders of the bread of life and of the living water that we might actually be changed and it might be the fruit that we bear that as we abide in the vine, we might bear the fruit of your son, bear the fruit of the spirit, not because we finally cleaned ourselves up, but because you've re rewired our affections and made us new. We pray that in your son's wonderful name. Amen.